Hey everyone, this is Jazz United. My name is Nate Chenin, Editorial Director at WBGO. And my name is Greg Bryant, host of Jazz After Hours on WBGO. This week we're talking about A Love Supreme, live in Seattle, John Coltrane. Uh, both of us have just had a listen to this monumental work that is uh, out today on Impulse Records. And uh, man, I don't even know if I have the words right now, man. We are speaking in the afterglow. And, and, and what a glow it is, man. Um, I should note that we recorded this episode a, a little while ago. Um, as we speak, this is actually John Coltrane's 95th birthday. Mm-hmm. And Greg and I thought it would be only appropriate to observe that occasion with music and in communion. And so, so we listened to this album separately but together. <laughs> and and it was just moments ago that uh, that we finished our our listening session, Greg. I, yeah, I, I share your I share your sentiment that it's it almost leaves a person speechless. Um, mm-hmm. But our job here is to not be speechless. Our, our job is to put these feelings into words, however we can. So I, I'm going to start, Greg, because this was your very first time hearing this music. Um. Man, raw response. What what did you think of this album? Um I think as far as its historical impact, um it's a holy grail. Mm-hmm. Uh when you first told me about this uh, over a month ago, I was floored. I had to hear it right away and no fair uh, to you for having this this long <laughs> and keeping it from me. Um, but no, I, I completely understand. Uh, this is going to set a lot of people on fire. Um, I have some mixed feelings about it as, Mm. um, it's artistry. Mm. I would have to give it five stars just because of what it is, just because of the affinity that I have and how John Coltrane has personally touched me, uh, in my life and in my listening experience. But this is totally, um, more of an exercise in what a love supreme meant to john coltrane i don't necessarily think that this is the continuation of a love supreme or some effort to uh, recreate the majesty that he achieved in the studio from the first few seconds on the disc the immediate feeling that i got was this was an in the moment decision they may not have even known that they were going to play this Mm. when they walked onto the stand um you can hear some what sound like uh, verbal uh, instructions that Coltrane is giving to a couple of the band members. And uh, when Elvin Jones is kind of feeling his way around, I would assume that it's Coltrane on a cowbell that is actually like beating out the figure. And he's actually singing the bass line to Jimmy Garrison. So this was an in the moment decision that I think um, really represented what he felt about this particular group of guys and what he felt about this exact work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'll say one more thing before um, I, I turn it over to you. The major disappointment for me was that for the majority of this um, set, Coltrane is off mic. And we've got a serious recording setup at Seattle's Penthouse Club, one of the best of its time. But um, man, if Coltrane would have been on that mic even 80% of the time, I think this would be like, it would rival the original for me, mm-hmm. just to be frank about it. But but I, I feel like 
it is definitely a chance to understand how he felt about these guys and how he felt about in the moment realizing the work for what it was not really an effort to extend it or to feature himself at all yeah wow you just put a lot in there um there's a lot to respond to i will i will second your impression that that there was an audible called um i think that's quite likely you know and and we have a relationship with this engagement historically in the form of live in seattle you know this this album featuring pharaoh sanders recorded that same week in that same room and so we sort of we know what the rest of the engagement kind of felt like um i think it's meaningful that this was the last night of a week-long run i feel that coltrane was absolutely comfortable he was at home he felt supported he felt heard um he was surrounded by friends uh, and musical family and i think all of that fed into the decision to to call the suite um you know my guess is that it probably came up in conversation you know uh, among his uh his peer circle in seattle that week you know um we know from the liner notes to this set that carlos ward the alto saxophonist who who we'll talk about in a moment Carlos remembers that uh, backstage there was some religious literature. You know, he he recalls it quite possibly as the Bhagavad Gita, um, and he said that you know um, Coltrane was was chanting you know all week. I think there was a lot of conversation around spiritual matters, and so the the notion that the week would conclude with a love supreme feels like something that would would resonate. You know that 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 John would feel okay, the time is right for this. Um, and I have a question for you about that, that sort of, um, you know, the, the, the tentative thing that you describe. Um, because I hear that in the, you know, the opening few minutes of the first movement of the suite, acknowledgement. But then we're off to the races. <laughs> My impression when you hear the rest of this especially further into acknowledgement and then especially um, on you know the middle of this week resolution and pursuance um, it feels like they are locked in and you know fully in their groove um, and I wonder if you you also have that impression I will agree to that I will agree to that I've got some uh, notes that I've made um, going through each song as I was listening uh, and with resolution I have quartet in strong at the top, a handoff to Carlos Ward uh, with a bit of his, uh, we'll say, Eric Dolphy spirit. I hear that. And then also at the seven minute mark, we hear Coltrane and what I'm going to say is perhaps um, one of his finest recorded moments, but we'll never fully know because we're led to guess about the parts that we can't really audibly hear. Mm -hmm. um, he's really in the spirit though, and you hear that classic quartet uh, synergy and telepathy in like all the way. And, and by the time of, of, of pursuance, uh, absolutely, man, we're firing on all cylinders. Uh, we're at the Super Bowl, man. We're, we're, <laughs> we're watching the, the, the winning <laughs> touchdowns. Yeah. 
See, for me, um, and I hear you about the the miking um, in the in the release for this uh, album. We actually have notes from the reissue engineer Kevin Reeves, who did, I think, a marvelous job uh, restoring these tapes. And he comments on the the microphone placement. You know, the penthouse had an in-house recording system with two microphones, uh, one placed close to the piano and the other sort of out front. And, uh, you know, the band was not approaching this as an album, you know, or any kind of recorded statement. You know, this was a performance for those in the room. And so um, to the extent they were even thinking about tape rolling, it was an afterthought, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so my my suspicion is that Coltrane backed off from the mic because he wanted to share equally with his guests, um, Carlos Ward and Pharaoh Sanders. You know, he, and he wanted to encourage this communal feeling. You hear the room in this recording, yeah. and that's yeah, what I do. that's what I really really responded to. Um, to me, it feels it feels like a a you know rough around the edges, but in a good way document of this moment in time and it, it really encourages this kind of time travel you know the the, mm-hmm. the way that all of the best recordings captured in the moment do i feel like it's in dialogue with coltrane at the vanguard in 1961 i feel like there's a similar spirit and because you hear this band doing what really only they could do it does rival the original for me in a certain way the expanded format and the way that John has his his bandmates um, create these improvised bridges between movements, it feels to me like this is this is really the fulfillment of the suite, in yes. a, in a way that the you know yes. the the format of a of an LP, um, which was necessary for you know for the the commercial release of a Love Supreme, I feel like I am more aware than ever of the constraints. That, mm-hmm. that that articulated, you know? To me, this is kind of the way that the suite is supposed to be experienced. I'll say this, Nate. You have a lot in that statement, to your credit. And I thought about Ashley Kahn's book uh, about a love supreme that came out, I believe, around 2002, mm-hmm. originally. Coltrane's notes for the suite were in that book and you're exactly on the money a love supreme was intended to have at least six musicians originally right um there were interludes that were set up originally and you're exactly on the money I think this is the realization of that um but I want to point us to just the serendipity of the moment these guys were there they were available they were in sync they were playing all week long why not try it as we originally intended? But when I hear the tapes of December 9th, 1964 and December 10th, 1964, I understand why Coltrane decided to go with the classic quartet mm-hmm. for Love Supreme. Yeah. I absolutely love the experimentation of the sextet on the second recording day that we didn't hear until 40 years later, I think. But I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, call it universe or god or chance or what have you i really hear a love supreme as those four guys doing exactly what they do now it's open to interpretation obviously and i'm so happy that we have this because i feel like 
what we're listening to now live in Seattle, Love Supreme, is almost a completely uh, different expression. Yeah, it's it's really complicated to unpack, um, but this is certainly the end of the beginning. And I think in being able to hear McCoy Tyner's statements loud and clear, almost out front, you can hear what he's having to negotiate and possibly the reasons why that uh, he decided it was time for him to move on. Mm, yeah. I think McCoy is brilliant on this recording. Agreed. Um, and uh, you, you said this was the end of the beginning. Um, I think for a considerable portion of John Coltrane fans who who draw a line in the sand, they might call this the beginning of the end. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, I do not yeah. share that opinion. Um, yeah. To, yeah. to me, what Pharaoh Sanders brings to the bandstand on this session is is incredible. And I feel like he is absolutely in tune with the spirit of the music. Um, he's certainly not as comfortable with the rhythm section as Coltrane is. No one could be. Right. Um, but I think that what he brings um, and the, the, the kind of pure expression, you know, which is which is not about um, harmonic resolution. It's not even about, um, you know, melodic shape. It's kind of just about pure sound. Yes, it um, is. And to me, that is every bit as valid an expression as, you know, the original Love Supreme or Giant Steps or anything else. But there is something to be said for that tension, right? And and to me, you know, maybe this is what it comes down to. I I love those moments where, where, you know, not opposing forces, but different forces are pulling in different directions and there's a turbulent center, you know? And for me, um, what you hear McCoy and Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison doing, they are holding the center. Um, Maybe it's a last stand, you know, (laughs) because uh, you mentioned Ascension. They had recorded that uh, a few months earlier. During this time in Seattle, um, Coltrane recorded Ohm. Um, and, you know, what lies ahead just around the corner is the dissolution of this group, you know, the addition of Rashid Ali, and then and then a late phase, which we can celebrate for other reasons, you know. Um, so uh, this is definitely a, a transitional moment. But to me, I, I, I don't know, maybe I am easily swayed by the the newness of this information but i feel like this has to stand alongside one of the high water marks for this quartet in terms of their cohesion in terms of the intensity of their output together um it, it feels it just feels monumental to me um i would i would probably sway towards the position that for me it's a different band mm-hmm. um and i love it I absolutely love it. So you you but, feel like by adding uh, Donald Raphael Garrett on that second base and Carlos Ward on alto and Farrell Sanders on tenor, it is fundamentally not the quartet plus three. It's actually a different ensemble. I agree 100% with that um, because I feel when the added members lay out, mm-hmm. I hear that you know telepathy, the synergy, the common... Uh, touch uh, that those gentlemen refined. Uh, But when you start adding, you know, different elements, uh, I feel like it can be just as powerful. 
but uh, the character changes. Uh, they react differently. Um, Donald Raphael Garrett um, perhaps may have been the reason that we are hearing you know, additional percussion in this ensemble. Uh, he's from Chicago. Uh, he knows uh, the early AACM members uh, who had that additional expression in their music, horns, you know, plus percussion. Uh, that is something we've not heretofore heard in Coltrane's music uh, up until this time. But I think that there's some um, times where uh, Raphael Garrett doesn't really know when to when to stop, when to end. He kind of lingers a little bit past like Elvin Jones, you know, putting a button on the, you know, the end of the tune or what have you. And I don't know whether he's emotionally caught up in the spirit, which is, you know, quite possible. I certainly or, would be. <laughs> yeah, I would be too. But uh, he errs on the side sometime, I think, of, of, of maybe overplaying. And I, and I feel like there's, there's a tension there that is, is trying to figure out you know, where he belongs and where he fits and where his contribution is. Carlos Ward, on the other hand, makes a pretty powerful statement um, that even leaves an impression on Coltrane mm -hmm. because Coltrane, you know, corners him after and says, hey, young sir, you need to come to New York because that's where the music is really developing in the way that you're trying to play it. And uh, I think he caught Coltrane's attention uh, and, and his ear. Yeah. Pharaoh Sanders, as we know, joined this group and stayed um, until the end. But I think you're right. This is uh, sort of um, a, a watershed moment for Train. Uh, and I would say in comparison, um, the quartet plus guests concept to me really crystallizes on meditations, which I'll just go ahead and say is probably my favorite John Coltrane album, if forced to choose just one, mm. because I think he played the way that they used to play as well as the way that they were headed or were playing right at that moment. Um, and I think he was really, Train was having to make some decisions about um, direction, even in the moment with who he was having join the band and what the history of the band already was. Mm. I think this is a good moment to hear a small portion of this music. And I think I want to actually set up a little bit of Carlos Ward's solo on resolution. Um, and I have something to say about that. Uh, but why don't, we, why don't we hear a little bit of Carlos Ward thrown into the deep end uh, with the John Coltrane septet, as it were. Um, so here we go. So, Greg, I, I have something to say about this. Um, the okay. first time I played this album, almost nobody knew about it yet. I, I was very fortunate to have been given a, an early uh, heads up by Impulse Records. And all I knew was when this was recorded and that it was recorded in Seattle during the same engagement that Pharaoh Sanders was on. And so I knew it was, you know, the Coltrane Quartet plus Pharaoh. That's all I knew. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, I put the record on and I sat and um, when Carlos Ward started playing, I fell out of my chair. 
because <laughs> first of all, I was not expecting an alto saxophone. I knew it wasn't Coltrane or Sanders. Right. And you mentioned that there's a sort of Eric Dolphy dimension to what Carlos does here. Um, that's exactly where my mind went. And I thought, this is the ghost of Eric Dolphy. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it, it completely yeah. took me by surprise. Um, it, I mean, it, it made sense in the context of this band's language, but I was like, who is that? Yeah. Uh, and so it was, you know, after I finished hearing the album that I, that I, you know, got that information. Um, but it was really a, a, a funny moment for me. Um, and again, I feel like, see, for me, I feel differently about the, the, um, integrity of the quartet. Um, I feel like it is so strong that even at this point, it, it, that chemistry is not changed by the addition of the others. Um, but I know what you're saying. Um, there's definitely not a kind of abiding focus here that you get when the Coltrane Quartet is doing its thing. Um, right. And I think that's intentional on Coltrane's part, you know. Um, but for me, it's 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 all good because because that core is so it's so you know granite solid um and you know we've we've sung the praises of mccoy tyner um how about we give it up for elvin jones oh yeah for a moment um oh yeah because he is i mean when is elvin not on fire in this band this is a performance that i think is going to be studied um by anyone who is looking to understand just what elvin jones did in an yeah. ensemble context, you know, um, everybody yeah. knows about his polyrhythmic fire and, you know, the intensity of his slashing approach. But what he does on this performance, um, I mean, you know, to put it simply, it was a good night for Elvin. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and Elvin on a good night yeah, is dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, there's a moment in the drum solo that uh, precedes pursuance mm -hmm. where i swear papa joe jones walked in the room or max roach walked in the room yeah i know what you're talking about yeah there's this hi-hat love i don't think i've heard elvin jones really approach at least on a record mm -hmm. um and i haven't heard his complete discography but as you and i are both you know well versed in in the the land of jones you know he plays the whole kit and even when he breaks it down you're more likely to hear an examination of a snare drum or a tom-tom uh, than a hi-hat. And man, I swear, you know, I'm hearing, you know, Joe Jones or, or Roy Haynes, you know, doing the hi-hat tricks, but it's in perfect sync with what has come before and what he does after. Yeah, um, and it's a funny and thing, right? Forget, it's you know? it's yeah. funny because the drum solo is usually the moment when, you know, you, you dial the intensity up, but because this band is firing on so many cylinders, um, Elvin's interlude is actually a moment to catch your breath. He sort of pushes in the other direction. You know, he's been he's been like, you know, um, all over the drums and cymbals the entire time. And during the drum solo, he actually kind of takes a moment, um, as you say, to focus on a single piece yeah. and to and to like explore space and silence for a moment. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. a really cool thing. And it, you know, again, it fits within the context of this entire thing. You know, that, that, I guess that's a point I wanted to make too. I feel like even the guests, um, maybe, uh, maybe without realizing it, um, everyone on this session 
seems to be participating in a larger arc. You know, um, I feel like, you know, it's, it's easy sort of in a motivic way to talk about the suite as um, in terms of its component parts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that this thing unfolds, I think, especially if you, if you surrender to it, you know, from the first note to the last, as you and I just did, um, it really carries you from start to finish. And yeah. I think all of the performances here feel like they are in service to that larger arc um, in a way that's really powerful, you know? And, and again, this goes back to why I feel that that this is such an essential um, iteration of the suite. Mm-hmm. Um you know that actually, I, I want to toss a question to you related to that. We, we've only had one other live, documented performance of a Love Supreme, mm-hmm. um, and that was at the um, the the Cap d'Antibes Jazz Festival, um, and it was recorded uh, earlier this year, right? It was it was 1965. Um, I don't right. have the the precise date handy, but mm-hmm. it was, it was very close to the recording session for Ascension. Right. Um, and if you, you know, there's actually some footage online of that yeah. performance. Um, and in its entirety, it was included in deluxe editions of a love Supreme around the turn of this century. So Greg, where does that recording, that performance of the suite stand in relation to this one? Mm, that's, that's really a hard question, man. Um, having only heard I Love Supreme Live in Seattle uh, once, I'll give it my best shot. Uh, I do feel that if I had to order um, just my level of engagement, I'll say, um, of all three, I've got to go with the master version first. I've got to go with this new version that we've just found slightly after that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe Antibes um, in the third slot. All of them are A-list. All of them are five stars. Please, you know, this is like, you know, what color do you want or, you know, what right. flavor do you want? <laughs> right. But I, I feel like there is um, there is an intensity and a focus because everybody is dialed in and trying to really find what does Train want? What does he want? Mm, yeah. Um, especially the new guys. They're really searching for it. They're trying to raise the bar just to the level of Elvin and McCoy and, and, and James. Um, yeah, that, that's how right now I would answer that question. I think this thing hits uh, really hard and there's an immediacy um, to this version that I feel like maybe the, the antique version doesn't have as much of. Yeah. Uh, well, I agree with that completely. Um, and I think I would probably also go with your, with your ordering. And I was curious because I, I, I wanted to know whether you you know, in light of in light of the the um, whatever reservations you have about this recording, you know, after a first listen, I was curious to know if if you would actually put Antibes higher, because you know there's no distraction because Coltrane is so clearly out front in a way that he he isn't always here. Um, mm-hmm. But I think I think you're spot on about the intensity. You know, for me, that's what that's what ratchets this up. I was recently talking with Branford Marsalis about A Love Supreme, which which he made the decision to to play with his band. Um, you On know, a couple some, of occasions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, 
And one of the things he said was, well, in Antibes, they didn't know it. They did. <laughs> this is Banford speaking, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm he said, yeah. yeah, the band didn't, the band didn't know it. You can tell yeah. it's like, they're, you know, they're fumbling around. Right. Um, and, and, you know, Branford faced, you know, all of the sort of usual, um, you know, misgivings about performing a love Supreme because, you know, this is sacred yeah. material and, and what have you, but he came to the conclusion that, you know, it's not about recreating the sound of the John Coltrane quartet. It's about matching the intensity of their commitment mm -hmm. as a band mm -hmm. and their commitment to the material. And so, so he felt like as long as we are, are bringing it with the, the same level of seriousness and fire and um, brotherhood and love that, yeah. that Coltrane and his quartet brought, then, then we can't fail, you know? It's, mm -hmm. Well, actually, Branford probably wouldn't say that. He, he would probably say that there are many ways to fail. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this idea of, it's not about the notes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. about, you know, what, what lies, you know, what, what courses through this music, which is, which is that commitment and that, and that spirit. True. I'm also going to say something that's uh, a bit uncharacteristic of me. Um, I've often felt that music is a conversation between the people who are making the sounds and we, the audience are eavesdropping on that conversation. But as a listener here, um, I hear a very engaged Seattle penthouse audience mm -hmm. so much so that they are in my mind's eye, uh, in a standing ovation after uh, pursuance is played. Um, Jimmy Garrison ha actually has to wait to start his bass solo because um, there's an extended applause after pursuance is finished. The Antibes audience is very reserved. Um, they almost don't know what to make of this, you know, new music. Well, they're French. Um, oh, oh man, <laughs> folks, write your letters to Nate Chenin at. Um, but sometimes when I hear the original La Love Supreme, Nate. I almost want to hear applause. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the Rudy Van Gelder version. Mm, yeah. Because when they end Pursuance and Elvin Jones just can't stop playing and you're like, gone, Elvin, you got more. Yeah. Gone, man, right. you got more to say. All right, bam, where's the audience? Well, I mean, if you experience Pursuance on this recording, you get it. It's, yeah. you know, even if you are um, not someone who is given to the more avant-garde side of of improvised music i feel like the the sheer energy level of of this version of pursuance i, I mean mm -hmm. i feel like i don't know i mean you could play this for people who have no relationship to jazz whatsoever you could play this for punk rock fans you could play this for you know almost anybody and just the that that onrushing tidal kind of force I want to ask you a question. Um, I know that the critical community has largely embraced uh, in subsequent years, Coltrane's avant-garde leanings. Uh, but do you think jazz radio has had any responsibility for the lack of socialization of people in general towards listenable avant-garde? Oh, I mean, of course. I, I, I feel like... Um... The idea that um, that this kind of avant-garde expression is too extreme for the masses—I mean, that is mm -hmm. a that is a programmer's idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, 
it's it's extreme because we treat it like a radioactive substance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it doesn't have to be the case. And I think, you know, we're talking about music that was made in 1965, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and I right. would like to think that we've caught up with that, um, you know, and, and again, I think it, it is, uh, it's a situation where, you know, you just have to trust the music and you have to trust listeners to make their connections with it. Um, I agree. You know, t- speaking of which, I think we need to hear the way that pur- pursuance concludes. Um, and then, you know, anyone listening now will understand what you're talking about. You know, when, 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 we, when we say momentum, and, and that you know forward thrust this is yeah. this is what we're talking about audience at Seattle's penthouse in 1965 for the John Coltrane group. They just um, couldn't get enough of it. And then you hear the start of what I'll say is one of um, James Garrison's finest moments on record. Um, so beautiful. You hear, you know, the, the double stops, you know, two notes at once. You hear these guitar-like uh, full-on chords um, no one was really playing the bass like this at that time. And I feel like as excited as many of us um, understandably get about McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones, uh, Jimmy Garrison was an innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't play the bass like, you know, a Ron Carter. He didn't play it like Paul Chambers did. But what he did, in my opinion, was just as important. You know, he showed uh, the range and the elasticity of what you know, a bass player's job could be. Um, And I feel like just the masterful order of his solos, and then he lands the end of it in the right key of Psalm for Coltrane to take over. He's still guiding the proceedings. You know, he's the ultimate unsung quarterback, I believe, in this music. Mm -hmm. Uh, James Garrison is. And (laughs) at the end of the concert, you can hear a fan or someone say, um, man, Segovia has nothing on you. And <laughs> right. you can, can hear him laugh. Yeah, so. yep. You know, it's, it's um, as you were saying that, Greg, I'm, I was thinking about the elements, you know, and you talk about earth, fire, wind, and water. Um, you know, to me, uh, if we stipulate that Elvin Jones is fire <laughs> yeah. and Coltrane is wind, uh-huh. um, it's kind of a toss up as to, you know, Jimmy and McCoy, who is, who is water and who is earth? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you, you want to say that Jimmy is earth because he's foundation, but you know, as you put it, he, he, he shifts things around and he's, he is, you know, he is as solid as any rock could be, but, yeah. but he's not, he's not, um, fixed in one place, you know? No, no. You know, we, we, we haven't yet talked about 
the miracle of these tapes, <laughs> the mm. fact that, um, first of all, that, that we're hearing them at all. Yeah. And then secondly, that it took us this long to hear them. And so maybe we should get into the backstory for a moment. Um, and so he, here's my understanding of the situation. Uh, Coltrane was at the penthouse in Seattle for a week. Um, I believe that was a six day week. And um, as we said, there was a house system, you know, a couple of mics going into an Ampex reel to reel. And Joe Brazil, great saxophonist and a great friend to Coltrane, um, he was there pretty much all week. And, and he was a hobbyist uh, recorder. Um, ah. and, and he, I think was, was quite familiar with the gear. He knew mm -hmm. the house system and I think he had access to it. And so, um, we have him to thank for rolling tape. Um, and in fact, uh, Kevin Reeves, the engineer points out that, you know, um, there are a number of tape reels that constitute this, uh, this recording and, um, there's only one flip, uh, and it's during acknowledgement. And so there's this feeling mm. that, okay. Uh, whoever was running tape knew what they were doing. You know, they sort of, they knew not to interrupt the flow. They, they knew how to, how to time it so that, yeah. um, that this thing was recorded properly. Um, so, so Joe Brazil, um, and I, I have to think that, that he recorded with John's blessing, you know, because um, they were friendly. Joe Brazil appears on Ohm recorded that week. And so I feel like he must have said, hey, John, you know, I'm going to record this. And it was, I assume, with that blessing that he rolled the tape. And then it was with that relationship in mind that he preserved those tapes so carefully and guarded them so closely yeah. um, for the rest of his life. You know, um, Joe Brazil died in 2008. My understanding is that he he did play these tapes for us, very select few people, but otherwise just kept them safe. And they were discovered in his archive uh, after his death by another saxophonist named Steve Griggs. And Steve was going through Joe's archives. He was cataloging and, and you know, figuring things out. Mm. And so he's the person who then became the steward of these recordings. And from there on out, it's a matter of making the approach to the Coltrane estate, which of course is now handled by his son, Ravi Coltrane, working things out with Impulse Records, you know, all of the, you know, the crossing of T's and dotting of I's that has to go into something like this. But it's remarkable, you know, at every step of the way, we have people guarding this thing. You know, Greg, at the top of our conversation here, you, you said, holy grail. Yeah. I feel like that really reflects the care with which these tapes were handled over the years, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. not letting them fall into the wrong hands, um, not even spreading the word about them, you know? So it's a really remarkable story of um, the respect that, yeah. that Joe Brazil and then Steve Griggs had for this material and for John Coltrane and his memory. Yeah. Yeah. Coltrane was uh, ahead in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think one of them was documentation. Um, he would often bring home tapes from Rudy Van Gelder's studio for his own private uh, safety. You know, that's how we get the um, Both Directions at Once album right. from 2018. Um, the Olatunji concert, uh, which is similar in some ways for me uh, to this. Um, probably we'll discuss that at a later time. But that was a, a private recording. 
that he had hired a musician, uh, Bernard Drayton, I believe, uh, to make for him that survived and was released uh, almost 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. Um, there are more uh, evidences of Coltrane, again, being recorded or recording himself with or without uh, the thumbs up from Bob Thiel. And I think he definitely wanted to make sure that he had landmarks you know, along the way because uh, a band like that, that changed, literally changed at least every three months, was worthy of documentation. Right. And it was probably pretty hard to decide what the next proper release would be because they were evolving so quickly. Greg, I will say, because it's important to acknowledge when you've made a mistake, that uh, on a previous episode of Jazz United, we were talking about uh, we were talking about Lee Morgan, mm -hmm. and you said that the complete Live at the Lighthouse sessions was you know the most important historical find of this year. Um, mm -hmm. Do you stand by that statement? Hmm. hmm. You know what? Um, I'm going to answer you with a part A and a part B. Uh-oh. Um, part A, historically, this may be a one-up on, on the Lee Morgan situation. We didn't know that this existed. This literally appeared for most of us out of thin air. It was like a meteor. <laughs> it was like a meteor <laughs> that hit. You know? Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I, will, I will say that historically, um, this takes the prize. But I have to say that the cohesion of that Lee Morgan band and the fact that we thought we would never hear their complete stand at that club, artistically, I have to um, assign my gold ribbon or blue ribbon uh, to the Lee Morgan uh, situation. I love this Coltrane band, and I want to really listen to this again. You've heard it multiple times. I've heard it just once. Um, but there is something about that Lee Morgan situation uh, that feels complete. It feels final. It feels like the summary of a relationship right. and the documentation um, therein. This Coltrane situation is certainly a transitional moment yeah. in the life of, of its leader and its band. And I'm so excited that we have it that I don't know what to do. But but I need to listen more before I say that this is my top yeah. um, release. That's perfectly fair. There's nothing I can add to that except to say... And maybe this is just putting paraphrasing what you said, but Live at the Lighthouse captures the ultimate expression of something. Mm -hmm. um, a Love Supreme live in Seattle. I'm not sure that it does, but I do feel that this band, which was so good in 1963 and 1964, they're on another level in late 65. Agreed. And, and I, I feel like they disbanded um, due to extraordinary pressures from from you know without and within, yeah. Um, but they disbanded at a high point. They certainly uh, did, and so I, I I think you know all the more reason to um, to savor this. Well, train in the liner notes to to meditations when Nat Hintoff was asking him to what extent was meditations a continuation of Love Supreme. He says, "There's no end." Yeah, right. You're always cleaning the mirror. You're always um, looking for that next thing. So in that tradition, this is certainly a home run.
The album, of course, is A Love Supreme Live in Seattle. Uh, Impulse Records has made it available in multiple formats. It's on CD, it's on vinyl, it is on streaming services. It is out on the day that we are releasing this podcast, October 22nd, 2021. It's very special. And, you know, Greg and I, in our personal interactions, Greg and I are certainly not done talking about it. No. Um, and we want to hear from you. What do you have to say about this album? What do you have to say about our conversation about this album? Um, reach out to us. You can actually uh, hit us up directly on Twitter if you like. My handle is at Nate Chenin. Mine is GB underscore Watchman. I'm on Instagram and Twitter as well. Yeah. Or you can find us at WBGO.org, uh, where our show lives. Um, and we thank you for listening, for, for hanging with us on Jazz United. And, and uh, Greg, how do you feel about skipping this I dig this week? Because we're just so full. Our hearts are so full digging on John Coltrane. We are jonesing on train. <laughs> that is we're jonesing right. and tinering and garrisoning. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you have not yet become uh, WBGO members, uh, please know that we are a member-supported station. We're a member-supported podcast. Uh, go to wbgo.org slash support. Give whatever you can to ensure that we can continue uh, being with you. Again, Jazz United is produced by Trevor Smith. Uh, my name is Greg Bryant. He's Nate Chenin. We will be with you again very, very soon. Thank you very much for listening. WBGO Studios Sports Jam with Doug Doyle is one of the longest-running podcasts. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll be surprised with guests like NASCAR's Tony Breidinger, documentarian Ken Burns, Hall of Fame writer Jerry Eisenberg, and USA gold medalist wrestler Tamir Mensah-Stock. Find the interview show on the NPR list of podcasts or at wbgo.org slash sportsjam.